Well, good morning, Oakwood. That's exciting news, isn't it, that we uh, ha have actually two staff people going to be coming within just the next few weeks. Uh, Dalton Shaw will be taking over as our director of our Oak and sports activities. And I think around July 14th, give or take a day or two, uh, he's getting out of the military and will be uh, coming here, joining us. And so we're excited about that. And then around the very first week, uh, we are excited that Jeremy will be here. So we also need some housing. So just kind of, as Eric said, keep your, your radar op op for that. This is July 4th weekend, and a lot of us will be getting together with family, uh, maybe cooking a hot dog, hamburger, celebrating, uh, swimming, fishing, doing all the things that we do on holiday weekends. But this holiday is uh, brought to us because a lot of men and women paid an ultimate price for our freedom. I know right now in America, it's not very popular to be patriotic, to be proud of your country, but I'm extremely proud of our country and I'm grateful and thankful that I live in America, amen? And it may not be perfect, but it's the best place on this planet that there is to live, and I'm glad that we get to call it home. And it's only because a lot of men and women paid a price for us to live in this country. If you are today an active or a former military uh, person, would you just stand up so we could just acknowledge and thank you for serving us today and, and allowing us to have the freedoms that we enjoy. Thank you. From all of us at Oakwood, thank you for either your current service or, or your past service. Several years ago, Jerry Jones uh, made this statement. Hold on, before, before I go there, do we have any Dallas Cowboy fans here? All right, so we got a few of them. Okay, you guys might remember after they won their second Super Bowl, he made this, it was their fact, it was their, their second consecutive there. He, he made this statement that really was pretty stupid, okay? He said it didn't matter who coached the Dallas Cowboys. Anybody can coach the Dallas Cowboys, well, if you kept up with the, the Cowboys, that's been kind of a train wreck since he said that, hadn't it? There uh, not been a lot of success. You know, it's really easy when things are going well to think anybody can coach this team. It's easy for us as Christians when things are going well in our life to think, you know, do I really need God? I can kind of do my own thing. I can call my own shots. But I want to tell you something this morning. It does matter who's in charge of your life. It does matter who's coaching the team. Last week, we began a new series called The Lordship of Christ, and we kind of established the fact that the first thing that we need to do in the Lordship of Christ is we need to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign whether you choose to acknowledge it whether you admit it, whether you surrender to it, deny it, God is sovereign. That means in, he's in total control. And every day, Scripture tells us, or one day, every knee will bow and acknowledge that God is sovereign. 
Now, that might happen when it's too late for you to acknowledge, but one day everybody will acknowledge that Jesus is sovereign. We establish the fact that he has to be number one. He has to be sovereign in our life, and he does not accept divided loyalty. And so settling this lordship issue in our life is absolutely essential to your success as a Christian, and I believe our success as a church. George Barna, who makes a living doing research for Christians and church organizations, I think he hit the nail on the head when he said this. The results of years of research is clear on this point. Many people name Jesus as their Savior, but relatively few have lies that consistently demonstrate that He is truly Lord of their hearts, minds, and souls. If we're honest with ourselves, part of the reason why many people remain unchurched is that they have overlooked us, or they have looked us over, and do not especially like what they see. Some of us talk the faith, but do not live it, while others do not even talk it very well. What he's saying is that people, when they examine the lives of Christians, to see what really is important, who's the Lord of their life, and sometimes they see very little difference between people that claim Jesus as Savior and people that don't. And honestly, is a turnoff to many people. But when we settle this lordship issue in our life, when we settle this issue of who's going to coach the team, it's going to make us more effective as Christians. Our testimony is going to become more powerful, and our life will hold greater influence to others around us when we settle that issue. You're going to have more joy and happiness than you've ever dreamed possible. You will have a peace that surpasses all understanding, as the Scripture tells us. And there's no way to describe that peace that comes only from the Lordship of Christ. If you don't have that Lordship of Christ issue settled, I can't explain to you the peace that you're going to have. When Jesus is Lord of your life, you're going to start to have a very powerful impact on the world around us. So this morning, I want to look at why Jesus must be Lord of our life. And there's two principles that I want us to look at today. Number one is that it settles the position issue of our life. Lordship settles this question, who is going to be number one in my life? Okay, all of us today are about positions and titles. We want to hold this position or have this title. Now, those of you that have played any sports um, realize that, you know, typically the quarterback gets a lot of attention, a lot more attention than the offensive lineman. And probably every offensive lineman has at some point thought, you know, I need to be the quarterback. Yeah, I know I can't throw a very good spiral, and I'm really not very fleet of, of foot, but that's really what I want to play. I want to play the quarterback. That's the position I want to be in. Instead of realizing that the team needs me on the offensive line, I want to be the quarterback because he gets all the attention. We all battle with that. Robert Ringer wrote a book, and you can buy it on Amazon. It's called Looking Out for Number One. 
And it is a, a, a top 10 of all time motivational books that have been sold. Why has it sold so much? Why has it been so popular? Is Because honestly, he began to kind of put into words what all of us think, that we're number one. We're the center of the universe. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Sometimes my wife reminds me of this. When I get to acting like I'm more important than anybody else or that I'm kind of the center of the universe, she'll remind me. She goes, oh, I forgot. This is your world. We're just living in it with you. Yes, uh, Miss Sweet Leah does that sometimes. Reminds me, kind of brings me back down to earth. I want to tell you, success is not looking out for number one. Success is making sure that Jesus is number one. So we established that fact last week that if he's not Lord of everything, then he's really not Lord at all. So the tough question for you today is, who's number one in your life or who's coaching the team? You know, this isn't a new struggle for us because, in fact, it was the very first struggle that man had to deal with. It's been here since the beginning of time. Open up your Bibles to turn to Genesis chapter 3 and read with me. We'll see this issue popped up. It was the very first issue that man and woman had to deal with. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, Eve bought into that lie that somehow she could be on the same level and be equal with God. She had to deal with this issue. Who's going to be number one? Do you guys realize that Satan is going to do anything within his power to keep you from making Jesus number one in your life? Now, he doesn't care who else or what else we put in that spot as long as it's not Jesus. He doesn't care if it's a relationship, a job, a house, a spouse, a hobby. He doesn't care what it is as long as it's not Jesus. And he's going to do everything within his power to keep Jesus from being number one in your life. And so if he can convince you to make something else number one in your life, he's going to cheat you out of all these blessings God has in store for you. Last week, we saw in John chapter 1 this confrontation that it was really kind of a, a, not really a confrontation, but a dialogue between Jesus and Peter. And Peter, as you remember, was a fisherman. That was his career. That was his profession. And after Jesus died and, you know, they didn't know what to do. They were kind of lost. They were kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen to us now. Peter made this famous statement 
where he told the other dis- disciples, I don't know about you, but I'm going fishing. And after that great catch of fish, and Jesus appeared to him, and he asked Peter, do you love me more than these? And really what he was talking about is, do you love me more than these fish, your profession that you used to do? Do you love me more than that? Three times, remember, he asked Peter, do you love me more than these? He said, then feed my sheep, take care of my lambs. He asked him the third time, and Peter was hurt now, but he asked him one time for every time that he denied him. Well, open up your Bibles to John chapter 13. We see another dialogue between Peter and and Jesus, and this all has to do with the position issue. Beginning with verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him him to leave this world and to go to his Father. Having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from his meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but you shall later, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part of me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Skip down to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do that you that you should do as I have done for you very truly I tell you no master or, or servant is greater than his master and no messenger is greater than the one who sent him now that you know these things you will be blessed if you do them I don't know if you've ever had your feet washed in any kind of a ceremony, but it is one of the more humbling things that you could ever have done. Most of us don't like our feet messed with. Now, I'm extremely ticklish of my feet. I don't like a foot massage. I don't like anybody messing, looking at my feet, or, or I just don't want them to, to mess with my feet. A lot of us are really sensitive about our feet, okay? Maybe you're ticklish. Maybe you feel awkward. Maybe you've got, you know, six toes on one foot and you really don't want anybody to see that. Or maybe you think you've got ugly toenails or whatever. And so you just don't want your feet messed with. But it is a very, very humbling thing that Jesus did by washing his disciples' feet. And I want you to see something here. Jesus wasn't 
position conscious, but Peter was. You see, that was typically the role of a servant. And Jesus said, I'm going to do a servant's job here. And Peter, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus had to remind him, you either allow me to wash your feet or you won't have any part of me. You see, I don't think it would have bothered Peter for anyone else to have washed their feet. He he himself wasn't. Peter wasn't going to go wash anybody's feet, but he just didn't want Jesus doing it. But Jesus set the example for us as servanthood to say, positions, titles, those things don't matter at all. Position-conscious people don't possess that servant's heart. They don't serve anyone they consider underneath them. They only want to serve for titles and recognition. When Jesus is Lord, you're not going to have any problem following his example of servanthood. Because we're not over anyone, but we're to serve everyone. And Jesus certainly wasn't position conscious, and he knew those things. If you, if you go back and you look at uh, verse 3, and he said, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, so he had all control. And that he had come from God, he knew where he was from, and he was returning to God. Jesus consistently and constantly submitted to God in every area of his life. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 15, 19 says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. You know that old saying, like father, like son? Well, Jesus was a servant because he had seen that modeled. That's our Lord, and he has modeled servanthood to us. So he understood this concept concept of lordship because he was submissive to his father and so we also have to do that and we have to make jesus lord of every area of our life the first area obviously is our salvation romans 10 9 says if you confess with your mouth jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved you see that settles the lordship issue with our salvation in our daily life Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart is working for the Lord, not just for men. Do you realize that everything and every task, every duty that we're doing reflects the lordship of our life? On our spiritual life, Romans 12.11 says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. That proves who we belong to when we serve. In our family life, Ephesians 5 verse 22. Now, let me, I'm going to kind of say this. Men love this verse. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But then they leave out this part where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
You see, when we settle this issue of lordship, it settles the selfishness in our life. By putting Jesus first as Lord, you enhance every other area of your life, your daily, your spiritual, your family life. And it's called surrender. Some of you may remember this uh, song that uh, we used to kind of sing it a lot as an invitation song. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken, take me Jesus, take me now. You see, if Jesus is not Lord of every area of your life, he truly is not your Lord. When Jesus is Lord of our life, it settles that position issue. Second principle I want us to look at today is why Jesus must be Lord, because it settles the permission issue. Who has rights to my life? Who has a right to my life? You know, I run into Christians all the time that seem to want to compartmentalize God into about the one-hour time slot or maybe a two-hour time slot if you go to Sunday school on Sunday morning. That's the time I'm going to surrender to God during this time. And if God asks anything else of me, then really he's kind of infringing on my rights. And we're all about rights today, aren't we? I've got a right to do this. I've got a right to do that. But when we settle the lordship, we surrender our rights for his rights. And I think sometimes people almost resent the fact that God may ask anything more than the little time commitment that we make on Sunday morning. Friends, I want to tell you, Jesus didn't and doesn't want to be just the Lord of your life on Sunday morning in this building. He wants to be the Lord of your life every day, all day, in every area of your life. Luke chapter 9. This happened to be uh, the very first passage of Scripture that I ever preached on when I was in, in Bible college. So I did a lot of study on, on this but this is a, an account of Jesus talking to three different men about this lordship issue. It, we pick it up in verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another one, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. When I first preached on that message, and when you read that, it really appears that Jesus is being pretty harsh. This guy says, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. 
And we see all three of these guys name Jesus as Lord. But the first one, he says, I'll go wherever you go. I'm going to follow you. And he said, you don't know where I'm going. I don't even have a home. But really what he meant was where I'm going is ultimately to the cross, that I'm going to die. Do you want to go there? I didn't think so. The next guy, what did he say? Hey, um, first let me go bury my father. Well, my goodness, how incompassionate of Jesus. Not, you know, this man's father has died. My goodness, let him go attend the funeral and take care of the arrangements. His dad hadn't died, or he wouldn't even be there yet. He would still be in that period of mourning. His dad was elderly at this time, and, you know, let me go bury my father is what he was saying. Is Let me go take care of my dad, and then when he's gone maybe months or years, however, then I'll come and commit to you. Not right then and there. The third guy says, hey, I at least want to say goodbye to my family. Can I go back and, and, and say goodbye to my family? And Jesus said, no. No one who puts their hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. few observations we can make from that passage that not everyone is ready for lordship. None of these three men were ready for lordship, even though they acknowledged him as Lord. They weren't ready to make Jesus number one in their life. Does that sound like some of us, that we might talk a good talk, but we don't follow it through with our walk? Lordship is also more than making a profession. All three of these guys acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but they weren't willing to go and do what it was going to take. And Jesus knew that. And in fact, most everyone abandoned Christ. In fact, in Mark 14, 50, the night that Jesus was arrested, it said, everyone deserted him and ran away, even those Followers of Christ, those disciples, they all fled and they ran in fear. We see that Jesus knows their hearts, you know. The professions they were making of Lord was a phony profession. Sometimes people say the right things and act the right way, but God saw right through that. How many times have people said they've got themselves in a jam and, Lord, you get me out of this thing and I'll do what, I'll never miss another Sunday, or I'll never not read my Bible, or I'll never do this, I'll never indulge in this again, and then they get out of it, and then they forget all about that. It was a phony confession. Lordship also requires us to choose. Who's going to be number one? Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. That means you can't serve the world and serve Jesus at the same time. You have to choose. You can't be in both. Lyndon Johnson, the president, he told a story of a teacher that applied for a teaching job during the Great Depression. And one of the, the questions that was asked of this teacher is, do you, it was a geography job that she was applying for, said, do you teach the earth as flat or round? Pretty easy question, right? She said, I can teach it both ways. 
You can't have it both ways, friends. A lot of people try to have it both ways, where Jesus is Lord of these areas of your life, but not these areas of our life. So lordship means accepting the future regardless of the cost. I want to tell you something, and you can write this down if you want, because this is absolutely true. The cost of not making Jesus Lord will always be higher than making Jesus Lord. So make no mistake, it's going to cost you to make Jesus Lord of your life. It will cost you. We also see that leaving the past regardless of the pull. And let me tell you, the pull of the past has a strong influence. How many people that have tried to break some type of an addiction keep getting pulled back? They keep getting pulled back from friends or old habits or old way of doing things. Let me tell you, friends, the pull of the past is strong and powerful. Don't go back to fishing like Peter said that he was going to do. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I'm going fishing. The pull of the past was trying to pull Peter back. We also have to seize the moment regardless of the inconvenience. You know, that I have found that following Christ isn't always convenient. In fact, often it's inconvenient. But it's always worth it. So we have to establish the fact that Jesus is the Lord of all or he's not Lord of all. And today, settle these issues on the position and the permissions issues of our life. Who has the right to my life? You see, if Christ is the Lord of my life, all the other areas of my life just kind of take care of themselves. They just kind of work themselves out. And if Jesus is the absolute center of your life, you're going to experience a, a joy that you, you can't even explain. Your influence and your testimony will become so powerful. Skip over to Romans chapter 12. But if Jesus isn't the absolute center of your life, you're on your own. Because as we're going to see when I read this scripture, partial surrender is really not surrender at all. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and the proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, we won't be able to understand God's will until we totally surrender. Not a partial surrender, it's a total surrender. What do you lose when you totally surrender? It may cost you, but you will gain in the end. You will profit in the end. About 130 years ago, a tornado struck the 
plains of Minnesota and virtually destroyed an entire town, the town of Rochester. Many people were injured. Many people were killed. An elderly doctor and his two sons that had both just graduated from medical school gave up everything and went to that town to minister and to, and to doctor and to work with those people, the, the hurt, the sick, the injured. They spent many weeks there working, giving up their practices to go serve this community. Their heroic uh, efforts didn't go unnoticed because financing was soon offered to build a hospital, provided that the, this doctor and his sons would take charge. So in 1898, they opened a clinic which soon attracted virtually worldwide attention. Today, that little clinic is known as the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where people all around the world come to receive medical care and treatment. It's one of the finest hospitals in the world, all named after a doctor and his two sons who decided that they would surrender and go serve these people. They left their practice and went and served. What did they lose by surrendering everything and putting other people first? A great hospital is founded because of that. You see, when we totally surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, you're going to find you've gained it all. Partial surrender is really not surrender. Now, close up your Bibles for just a second. I want to tell you, some of you are hanging on to some areas of your life that you have not surrendered. It might be the finances. It might be your health. It might be a relationship. It might be your children, that job. It might be a habit. It might be the pull of a past sin that just keeps haunting you and you haven't fully surrendered and you haven't let go and you're, you're kind of hanging on. Say, Lord, you can have this part of me, but I'm hanging on to this part because, you know, it's special. I don't trust you with that. That's really not surrender. That song, all to Jesus, I surrender. All surrender. All to him I freely give. Jesus is not going to demand surrender from you. But he's asking you to surrender everything. Everything you have everything about you for the promise of everything.